welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. It seems the Final Destination franchise found a one-up after the conclusion of The Final Destination, as the series is returning for a fifth and final Destination film, but for real this time. The Supernatural Slasher franchise has really grown on me for its continued dedication to creative kills and elaborate set-piece designs, something that I hope Final Destination 5 will improve upon more so than its predecessor. Directed by Stephen Quayle and released in 2011, Final Destination 5 begins with a new cast being saved by a sudden premonition foretelling their deaths. Our new protagonist, Sam, foresees the bridge that his company retreat bus is driving across collapsing. After taking quick action to warn those who will listen about the imminent collapse, Sam saves his girlfriend Molly and a handful of co-workers as those who stayed behind perish on the bridge in a horrible fashion. Sam's heroics are short-lived, though, as survivors have cheated death's design and begin to be gruesomely killed off one by one in increasingly bizarre in elaborate ways. To no one's surprise, the film's first half plays out like the four films that preceded it. Sam and his girlfriend Molly attempt to convince the other survivors that they're being hunted by death, often failing to reach those targets in time. I've come to accept this formula, and you should have too by now. And yet, the creative team was cognizant of this and decided to introduce a new narrative wrinkle that adds a new twist to the procedural nature of these films. The concept of a survivor killing someone to steal their life force to stop death from hunting them is introduced by none other than the return of the ever-mysterious Bloodworth, played by the goat Tony Todd. This introduces the concept of not only man versus nature, but of man versus man, as survivors are picked off one by one and they become increasingly more desperate to avoid meeting a similar fate. This adds yet another layer of tension to an already tumultuous relationship between the survivors. This works as well as it does because the film's producers made the conscious decision to go for a far darker tone, rather than the comedic route of previous films. This is the core element that makes the film work so much better than The Final Destination, in that it returns to the more tense and disturbing tone of the original. Now, don't fret, as the film still certainly has its dark humor moments, but overall, kills aren't designed with solely laughs in mind, which made the last film feel like a comedy and ultimately an outlier compared to the other films. The film's narrative is not only stronger, but director Stephen Quayle's handling of the 3D is leaps and bounds better than in The Final Destination. I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep shitting on the previous film, but it really was that bad. In relation to working with 3D, Quayle said he only wanted to use it when he wanted the greatest impact, but was sure to not overuse it. He goes on to make the analogy that if everything is full volume all the time, it becomes normal and loses what makes it special. This spectrum gives the film a dynamic range of 3D moments and traditional camera work interlaced with both green screen and practical effects that makes for the most technically refined entry yet. Now, it's time for my favorite part of the series review. Time to rank some main character kills. First up is the North Bay Bridge Collapse. This is how the film opens. And it's not only one of the most impressive set-piece disasters of the series, but it's also the longest. The overall length of the scene really lends a sense of realism that most of the kills lacked. The easier it becomes to put the viewer into the shoes of the characters themselves. Given the chaotic and large scale of the scene, you would assume the majority of it would be CGI. But in actuality, there was quite a bit more to it that helps it to avoid feeling cheap, kind of like its predecessor. So, they obviously had to utilize green screens and wiring for when sections of the bridge collapse, or for when people start falling to their deaths or, in one particular case, impaled onto the sail of a sailboat passing underneath the bridge. First, the creative team shot footage while on an actual bridge, but then when things began going to hell, they had to recreate two sections of the bridge within a green screen studio. This allows them to capture every angle and adds verticality to ensure each of the deaths is as shocking and frightening as possible. 
Now, a reliance on CGI and 3D doesn't mean that they didn't also utilize a number of practical effects and silicone molds to model the character's wounds they would sustain during the collapse, such as David Cochner's character Kevin wearing extensive burn makeup for when he scolded alive by sizzling hot tar, or when Miles Fisher, aka Tom Cruise's doppelganger, wore a prosthetic face for when his face is actually skewered by a falling piece of rebar. Sure, the 3D kicks in to put his gruesome wound right into the audience's face, but it's more effective for this reliance on practical effects than an over-reliance on 3D or CGI. At one point in the making of feature, stunt coordinator J.J. Macaro said that Arlen Escarpetta, who plays Nathan, has a natural athleticism that allowed him to do several of his own stunts, such as when he gets sideswiped by a flying bridge cable. They were actually able to yank him off his feet and send him into padding while attached by wires. Small touches such as this help to sell Final Destination 5's kills in a way that never feels cheap, and has the wherewithal to respect its audience's expectations, given it's the fifth film in a series. It also captures the feel that an opening segment should, that of impending sense of danger and doom that lingers within the environment. We even get a cameo of the logging truck that caused the pileup in Final Destination 2. Overall, a strong opening with numerous gruesome and bloody deaths to boot. Next up is the gymnastics fall. Brief anecdote time. When I was in the second grade, I split my toe open on a corner of a balance beam in gym class. Up until that point, it was the worst pain I had ever felt in my life, and Final Destination 5 made me feel fortunate that this was the only injury I would sustain that day. I've always wondered just how the hell gymnasts practice these types of flips and twirls without absolutely wrecking their shit. And while I know they practice by falling into foam pits, it doesn't make their aerial acrobatic feats any less impressive. This kill not only highlights this, but is at the heart of the Final Destination ethos. Taking a fairly standard setting and kill someone in a horrifically awful way. And y'all, this is certainly a doozy of a kill. Ellen Rowe plays Candace, the girlfriend of the Tom Cruise doppelganger. Fortunately, she herself is a former gymnast in real life, and in an interview, she said she relished the opportunity to get back in her old passion, which had her training for eight weeks, three hours a day, for five to six days a week. Pretty intense stuff that adds an authenticity, which helps to sell the scene that much more. This kill not only has a brutal finish, but it has the elaborate domino effect and numerous fakeouts that I love so much. We see a screw fall from a faulty AC unit landing perfectly onto the balance beam with which Candace is jumping on. We assume she'll step on it and fall. We also see water leaking and pooling by an exposed electrical cable, the assumption being that she's about to be fried alive. These end up being fakeouts which not only make the final kill shocking, but showcases the creative care being applied to each set piece. The kill ends with a different gymnast stepping on the screw on the balance beam, falling, knocking over a stand of gym powder, which distracts Candace during her mid-air aerial dismount, causing her to land awkwardly, basically folding her legs over her own head, as bones spurt out of her legs. It is incredibly gory in a way that not all previous kills have had been. Plus, the camera lingers on her mangled corpse, which makes it all the more disturbing, far more than I'd anticipated. I wouldn't describe most Final Destination kills as sickening, but this one sure fits the bill. Next is the finale's plane crash. The film's final setpiece kill is not only a fantastic kill, but a fantastic conclusion to the Final Destination series. It's revealed within the last few moments of the film that Final Destination 5 is in fact a prequel to the original. As Sam and Molly aboard the doomed Flight 180, as they get comfortable in their seats on their way to Paris, we see a brief shot of the fight between Carter and Alex of them getting thrown off of the plane. This is a gut punch in a way that I didn't see coming, and despite it becoming commonplace that protagonists don't survive these films, knowing how a character would die made it that much more of a somber experience. The writers brought the series full circle in a terrific way that ties the franchise together nicely. And here's two fun facts. First, Sam and Molly were heading to France, so Sam could pursue an internship at a restaurant restaurant called Mur 081, which is the cafe Alex and Carter and Clear had drinks at at the end of the original Final Destination. And 081 backwards is actually 180, which is the flight number of their plane. And finally, Arlen Escapita, 
who plays Nathan, said it was important to him that the film broke the stigma of the black guy dying first. Given he's the last person to die within the film, when Flight 180 crashes into the bar he's drinking at, I'd say that they succeeded in that regard. And one last tidbit. The bar he's drinking in has a picture of the number six race car that caused the racetrack disaster in The Final Destination. These little Easter egg moments make this slasher franchise feel connected in a way that few rarely do. Next is the massage parlor head crush. Now, PJ Bryan's character Isaac's kill is a difficult one to rank. It has all the trappings of elements of a good Final Destination kill, but it's incredibly bogged down by some really out-of-place racial humor. Isaac's character largely exists to serve as comedic relief, rarely offering any real comedy. I get his character's shtick, and he's supposed to be an asshole, but it always came across as annoying and distracting from other, more interesting characters. Anyhow, his trip to the massage parlor is filled with fake-outs and follows the domino effects of events leading to his gory demise. There's also a ton of cringeworthy racist jokes aimed at the Asian employees that are not only lame, but shows an utter lack of creativity or ability to truly write humor. Problematic humor aside, the scene is an adequate example of gruesome practical effects and an unconventional set piece for a kill. We watch as Isaac, who's just been stuck with dozens of therapeutic pins, falls off the massage table only to suffer a dozen mini impalements by the pins is not only sickening, but in typical fashion, his death doesn't stop there. Eventually, a Buddha statue that he mockingly rubbed upon walking into the studio falls from a shelf, splattering his brains across the ground. A fitting end to a genuinely unlikable character that, while inventive, took far too long to get to, and was bogged down by racial humor that doesn't know when to quit. And two brief fun facts of this kill, one coming straight from Google Translate. The massage parlor is called Ming Yun, which means destiny in Chinese. Also, there's a hint early on in the film that part five is a prequel as the gift certificate to the massage parlor that he steals from a co-worker's desk has an expiration date of 2001, one year after the first film. Next is Olivia's laser eye procedure, which, honestly, if my co-workers were mysteriously dying one by one, I would probably reschedule for another time. Olivia, played by Jacqueline McInnes Wood, is placed on a table and a speculum is placed into her eye to ensure she doesn't blink while the laser is active. Stunt coordinator J.J. Macaro stated, The scene took days and they had to place that speculum into her eye at least 20 times. Though he did note that they didn't use a stunt double as Jacqueline did it all herself. Props to her, because not only would I not want someone having to touch my face that many times, but the claustrophobic nature of the shot is skin-crawlingly uncomfortable. Of course, the doctor has to leave the room once Olivia is strapped to the operating table, and that's when a chain reaction of events leads to the laser being turned on, but also overheating, causing the voltage output to burn not only her eye, but to cut through her skin. The laser goes from correcting her vision to shredding it as the searing laser now burns through her eye, face, and hand as she attempts to block the laser. It's incredibly gruesome as she turns to the camera revealing extensive burn marks to her face and hands. Now, for as strong and uncomfortable as the scene begins, it quickly loses steam as Olivia frees herself from the table only to slip on a comfort teddy bear eyeball and falls through her window landing onto a car below. It feels somewhat rushed, lacking the bite of the first half of the kill, and ultimately, it's still memorable, but not the best of the film. Next is the skewer kill. This is the man-versus-man portion of the film that I referred to earlier. As the film creeps to its crashing conclusion, we see Tom Cruise look-alike having fully bought into the idea of taking another's life to save his own. As he's convinced himself Molly doesn't deserve to live, he shows up to Sam's restaurant with a gun to kill her and anyone who gets into his way. I definitely dig the concept of pitting survivors against one another, but I couldn't help feeling as if Sam and Peter's fight could have been more inspired. I would have loved to see them both be marked for death simultaneously and have to avoid the plethora of dangerous objects residing within the kitchen. Narratively, this really worked for me as it's a new wrinkle in the story other than more mellow drama from Sam and Molly's relationship. In terms of it unfolding on screen though, 
Peter getting skewered by a kebab spit was brutal, but ultimately felt a tad uninspired. And, by far the most underwhelming kill of the film, is paper company boss Dennis, played by David Kocher, being killed suddenly when a wrench is flung by a piece of machinery, impaling his head. A quick kill that is meant to shock, rather than wowing with its creativity. It's forgettable, but there aren't many moments like this in the film, which is definitely a plus. One small fun fact. David plays Todd Packer in the American version of The Office, which is also a paper company employee role. That's it. That's the fact. What makes Final Destination 5 such a fitting follow-up to the previous film is that it largely learns from its mistakes. It fully harnesses the 3D technology so it never feels distracting. The kills feel like a natural progression from the original, and the cast, while still not amazing, are definitely an improvement over the previous one. The film pays homage to past films in a way that respects the fans with a continued dedication to making a truly supernatural slasher. Over the course of five films, there were far more ups than downs, given a constant dedication to creativity, laughs, and devilish disasters. The unknowing nature of where death would come from next gave these films a longevity that most slashers often fumble with, which can make slashers feel mundane and uninspired, typically. I still wish we'd received more of a reasoning behind the premonitions, some type of connective tissue that would link all the films together into one. But we got the most Tony Todd we have ever gotten in part five, so at least I was happy in that regard. Should they ever revitalize the series, and I truly hope they do in the future, it would be the cherry on top of a refreshing slasher series that holds up better than most. I may not know what the future holds for the Final Destination franchise, but if this really is the final film for real this time, Final Destination 5 certainly ties a neat bow on the series by bringing things full circle. And that's going to be a wrap on my first horror movie series review. I plan on having a poll on the Daily Horror Habit Twitter page, which is at Daily Horror Pod, in the next few days so that way you guys can vote on the next series I'll review. In the meantime, I'll see you guys soon for another Daily Horror Movie Review. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service, and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram, or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.